telling, telling the future. And no great surprise, God says about himself in this very book, that is Isaiah, um, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah says in chapter 42, is the Lord says of himself, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Indeed, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. <laughs> Isaiah 46 verse 9 and 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And he proves it, doesn't he, in one sense. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Oi. That's like making a statement before something happens and determining that regardless of what anybody wants to say or do, my will and my purpose is going to stand. And people are like, oh, really? Oh, we'll have to wait and see. And God's like, all right, then, like, try me. Like, test, put me to the test, if you like. He says, I'm God, there's none like me. So over the course of four weeks, we're, we're looking at the office of prophet under four major headings. It's just a little kind of subsection of this overview. And um, under the four headings, the four headings that we've, that we've had are the prophets in four different, kind of looking at them in four different ways. Minor prophets, major prophets, the exile or prophets um, making prophecies um, during the time of exile when, is when, 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 when Israel and Judah go into captivity and then post-exilic after the exile when they come back into, at least Judah comes back into the land of Israel. And last week, obviously, we did one of the minor prophets. This week, we're looking at one of the major prophets. And it's Isaiah. I mean, literally, probably the major of the major five prophets. They call Isaiah the Mount Everest of Hebrew prophecy. Approximately 700 years before Jesus. Um, and it's 200 years after what we have already seen is the divided kingdom. So the kingdom's divided, and 700 years later, we're going to see the Lord Jesus come onto the scene, the central character of the Bible. <clears throat> now, in Isaiah chapter 1, we get a little intro, verse 1. It says, the vision, this is that which God gave to Isaiah, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Because remember we said that you have to figure out which prophet is going to which house, whether it's Israel or Judah. So Isaiah is going to Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of a few kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and then probably Hezekiah's son. We'll come to that. Isaiah. <clears throat> Do you remember last week, right? Who was the prophet that we looked at? Hosea, thank you. Um, who was a significant person associated with Hosea um, who was integral or an integral part of his message? It was a member of his family. His wife, remember? Okay, Go, um, Goma. I keep calling her Homer. Goma. No, Homer. Goma. Isaiah, in similar fashion, um, 
is going to have members of his family that are going to identify and even summarize the two aspects of his message. And it's not his wife, it's his children. It's his children, and they've got, they got strange names, especially the first well, both of them, especially the first one. This first one's pr pr pretty difficult to pronounce. Mahashalal Hashbaz <laughs> is one of them, and the other one, Shia Jashub. Now, the first um, child... The name means swift to the booty, which means plunder, right? <laughs> yeah, we've got to be careful with these modern colloquialisms, right? To take the plunder, the booty, speedy to the prey, Isaiah chapter 8. And the other son's name means a remnant shall return. And these, the, these two sons, at least the names of these two boys, are an interesting summary of the two main aspects of Isaiah's message. Remember, we're trying to make sense of a, of a difficult book. You know what I mean? And this helpfully does that. The two sons, <clears throat> essentially, pretty much, are talking about condemnation, one son, and comfort, which is going to be the other son. Can you see that to some degree? And, and it's funny because they say that Isaiah is a little bit like the mini version of the whole Bible. Because how many books in the Bible? How many chapters in Isaiah? 66 and it's really funny how the, the book is split um you've got 39 old testament books 27 new testament books in the same way you've got 39 chapters in isaiah 27 um 39 and 27 split the first 39 um kind of focus on natural israel where the second 27 tends to focus largely on spiritual Israel. Natural Israel, spiritual Israel. Condemnation, what may have seemed like no hope, but then in the latter part, there's comfort, and all because of God's designated deliverer. Now, according to tradition, Isaiah would eventually be executed. Anybody know how? Amen. Thank you, Harry. Sawn in half, we suspect. We can't be completely unequivocal about it. Um, Albert Barnes, he says, um, in his introduction to Isaiah, he says, Josephus, who is a, a, a first century historian, um, Josephus indeed does not expressly state that Isaiah was slain by Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's son, um, a really wicked man. But he gives an account of the reign of Manasseh, which renders it probable. The time and the manner of his death are not specified in either the Bible or any other primary sources. <clears throat> but you have the Talmud, and a particular part of the Talmud says that he suffered martyrdom by being sawn in two under the orders of Manasseh. Now this concurs at least with Hebrews chapter 11, that says, that says, speaking about different individuals throughout the scriptures who um, are part of what has been termed the Hebrew hall of faith, right? <clears throat> Hebrews 11 verse 37 says, they were stoned, some of them. Some of them were what? Sawn in two. That concurs, if you like, at least with what, what has been cataloged historically, apart from the Bible. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. <clears throat> now, 
There's this suggestion that he was possibly killed by Manasseh. Manasseh was a very, very evil king. Very evil king. He was Hezekiah's son. He was probably the worst king that Judah had. Because remember, the, the kingdom split. And he had these two different sets of kings ruling in contiguity. Both at the same time in parallel. Most, if not all, of Israel's kings were evil. A lot of Judah's kings were good. Most of them fell, including David and Solomon. Um, but, um, but some of them were good men, obviously, like David. Um, and, but, and yet Hezekiah, who was a king in Judah, sorry, Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's son. Hezekiah was a relatively good king. He kind of, towards the latter part of his life, things kind of fell apart. Um, but his son, like Manasseh, Oh my gosh, let me show you how evil and wicked he was. What he used to do was follow the, the customs of the nations around him. And he was a king who would often offer up child sacrifices. Oh, this is how wicked. So you think, how are you going to saw a man in two? Well, if you're anything like Manasseh, and I'm saying it's like second nature. Because this is how my man used to go on. He was like a, he was a tyrant. And <clears throat> getting back to to Isaiah, Isaiah is, pro is, is probably the, the most quoted Old Testament prophet um, in the New Testament. Isaiah is quoted twice as much as any other prophet, apart from apart, any other book and prophet, apart from the Psalms. Um, I think probably there are more quotations from the Psalms in the New Testament, but Isaiah stands head and shoulders above any of the other prophets with reference to his popularity in terms of his being quoted. Um, and it's funny, remember the, I, was, I mentioned this whole 39 books, 27, seems very much like the Old and the New Testament, the whole Bible in one book in Isaiah. If you go 39 chapters, you come to the end, if you like, of, of, of the first part of Isaiah, like you would come to the end of the Old Testament. The next chapter is chapter 40. Listen to chapter 40 and, uh, and tell me what it sounds a little bit like. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Sorry, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5. What does that sound a bit like? John the Baptist. Sounds a bit like John the Baptist, isn't it? Which is at the beginning of the New Testament, right? Now, if you go to the end of Isaiah, end of chapter 6, like the end of the, the book, chapter 66, it sounds a little bit like, what, what would you suspect? The book of Revelation. It, it, it's argued. So, in Isaiah 66, verse 18 to 22, it says, And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages. And they will come and see my glory, says the Lord. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem. A little bit more about that in a minute. As an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. 
And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites. And says the Lord, as, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. Yeah, that sounds a bit like the book of Revelation, particularly Revelation 21 and 22. Talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And it's funny because in this second section of Isaiah, in the middle of that second section, you've got Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, which seems to be the central message of that second section. And if you know anything about Isaiah 53, then you'd say, oh, for real. Because Isaiah 53, I may come to it towards the end, um, talks quite poignantly about that same message of the New Testament again, landing on the Lord Jesus. And... <clears throat> Whether it's Old or New Testament, whether it's this beginning part of Isaiah, the second part of Isaiah, talking about judgment, the first part, or comfort, we need both. We need both. Listen to what David Pawson says in terms of just the balance that's needed, especially as you approach the whole Bible, that is the whole story. He says, God is consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a unique combination of justice and mercy. If you stress one more than the other, you get an imbalanced view of God. If you think only about God's justice, you get too hard a view of God. If you only think of his mercy, you get too soft a view of him. In the one case, there will be fear and no love. And in the other case, there will be love with no fear. The prophets provide a wonderful balance. God's justice means that he will punish sin and his mercy means that he longs to pardon. This tension is fully resolved at the cross. Where, where, where in the Psalms it says justice and mercy meet. Justice and mercy kiss one another. You know what I mean? At the cross. Because you see at the cross God's Justice is heavy hand of justice on the Lord Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus takes it full in the face. Um, but then as he's taking God's justice and the punishment that not he, but we deserved. How many of you know we get God's mercy? It's called propitiation. Where God's justice, where, 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 where God's anger and his wrath is turned away from you and me. And it lands on Jesus. And I'm saying, and you perfectly see a God of justice, but a God of mercy, a God of love. Can you see that right at the cross? And it's beautiful, but the cross is like a cross here. It's like with a whole of history. Jesus, the central character of not just the Bible, but the whole of human history. I mean, looking further, <clears throat> the basic theme of, of the book is found in Isaiah's name, Isaiah, right? It means salvation is the Lord's. It sounds a little bit like Hosea, Hoshea, Isaiah. And I'm saying salvation is the Lord. And salvation appears 26 times in this book. And, and that's astounding. It's quite staggering because it's, it only comes up seven times in all of the other prophets combined. Salvation. In chapters 1 through 39 in this first section, 
It portrays great, um, man's great need for salvation. Right? And, like God's judgment's coming. You need saving. And in chapter 40 through to 66, the second section reveals God's great provision of salvation. It's really quite beautiful. <clears throat> now we've looked at the major um, divisions of the book, trying to get some kind of handle on what Isaiah is about. Let's look at the, the minor, or I say minor, the sm meaning smaller um, divisions. And there are, there are seven of them. Don't be nervous because we're going to go through them quite quickly. First of all, judgment on Judah, then judgment on Judah's neighbors, judgment on all the earth, his, a historical interlude or a little parenthesis, then Israel's deliverance, um, then Israel's deliverer, and then seventh, Israel's glorious future. That's pretty much a summary of the whole book. And, <clears throat> and so first of all, judgment on Judah. Chapter 1 to chapter 12. In Isaiah chapter 1, whoops, verse 2 to 4. This is a bit of a courtroom setting. As we get ready to read the text. See that as the backdrop. As God puts his people in the dock and then he calls for witnesses against them. Verse 2, Isaiah 1 says, hear me, you heavens, if you like, this is God, you know what I'm saying, looking around at the courtroom of the universe. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its, owner, its, its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. The, my, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Hence, God's call now to Isaiah in chapter 6. Now, most, most, of, most of you are probably familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, where it talks about Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, and I'm saying high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple, right? And his angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah's there and he's like, whoa. He's like, woe is me. He says, for I am, for I'm, I'm, I'm undone. He feels naked and embarrassed and ashamed in the presence of the holiness of God, like we all would, right? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's always helpful when the man that God's going to use understands that the people he's going to speak to is just like him, or he is just like the people he's going to speak to. Otherwise, the person can easily come across as condemning, you know what I'm saying, and patronizing. It's always good to remember, isn't it? As God's spokespeople, person, man or woman, um, we're only reaching out to people who are just like us or people that we were just like, if not still are like, as God wrestles with us, as God changes and transforms us by his grace. 
And it says, as, as Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness, it's funny because in spite of that, the Lord is going to use him. And sometimes we can be undone, we can be paralyzed, can't we? Especially when we think back to our past and even sometimes our present, stuff that's going on in our lives. And we feel like, oh man, I'm just a hypocrite. God could never use me. You know what I mean? I'm, 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 I'm just as sinful, if not more sinful than the people that I speak. You know, sometimes you come across some people that are good people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm talking about morally, you know what I'm saying? Upright in a sense. Not perfect because no one's perfect. Um, yeah, this is how Isaiah feels. And, and here comes the angel, touches his lips with a coal and he's cleansed as it were. And then he's commissioned by God. I'm saying in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8 he says and, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send <laughs> it's funny isn't it the Lord's there kind of looking around like, hmm, I wonder who, I, who I'm going to send to to speak my word to share this message with the people I mean from what it seems Isaiah is the only person there you know what I mean and um and who will go for us notice another reference to the Trinity God is a triune God who will go for us just like in the beginning, God made man in his own image and light. And he said, let us make man, right? Um, then I said, here's, here's Isaiah. Isaiah's like, boy, Lord, I'll go. And I'm saying, like, here I am, Lord. Lord, send me. And, um, and that's beautiful. And again, a great encouragement for us. And the Lord does. He takes him. And it's similar to our call. We're, we're sinners who are saved by grace. Sent out to share the good news with others. That same good news that changed and transformed our lives. So Isaiah the prophet declares <clears throat> God's word. And it's a word of judgment, as we said. Condemning Judah. And how many of you know judgment? Where does it always begin? It begins in the house of God. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? Judgment begins in, the it begins in the house of God, but notice it doesn't stop there. After this, we see the judgment spread, which is our second point. So judgment on Judah, chapter 1 to 12. And then chapter 13 to 27, we see judgment on Judah's neighbors. In chapter 13, we read about these burdens that the prophet has, these burdens. And you know what a burden's like? It's like you're carrying something. And it's these burdens prophecies that he's got with reference to God's judgment on the nations and he won't be relieved the prophet until he unloads the burden that is these prophecies and communicates them you know you hear Paul in the New Testament says woe unto me if I preach not the gospel you ever felt like that you're like man it's funny we, we feel really paralyzed sometimes to share the gospel but at the same time we feel compelled we're like man and I feel, like, I feel like a paralyzed man. I can't lift my feet or my hands. I can't open my mouth. I feel like I'm mute. But I'm overwhelmingly convinced I have, this, I have this fire in my bones saying I must still share this message. But there's this incapacity. You ever, you ever experienced that? And it's like a bur It's like carrying a burden. You know what I mean? And may God give us grace to release ourselves, relieve ourselves of that burden. Often, I think, you know, I do. I look at Mikey and others who are really gifted in sharing the gospel, who share the gospel at the drop of a hat. You know what I mean? Um, you just, you, I just chuck Mikey the mic, and I know immediately he can begin to communicate the gospel. You know what I'm saying? Like lives and breathes it. Where's Byron? Can't see Byron. 
And, um, and yet many of us don't feel that inclined. We, well, we feel inclined, but we don't feel the, <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't feel the, the, that surge of power that enables us to go and do it. We kind of struggle a little bit more. And, and yet we do, we carry a burden. And, and until, we, until we galvanize some boldness, and maybe even seek the Lord in prayer for some power, you know what I mean? We will continue. Sometimes you're carrying that burden. You don't even realize that's what you're carrying at your workplace. You know what I'm saying? At school, at uni, at, you know what I'm saying? In the home. You might be the only Christian in your home that is in your you know, immediate family, but then in your wider family. We carry this burden, don't we? Like the prophet of God's word. Um, May God help us to unload that burden, as it were, and <laughs> to some degree, put it on someone else. I remember when I first heard the gospel, oh my gosh, it felt like someone dropped a 10-ton rock on my head. You know what I mean? And um, it got my attention. What can I say? And <clears throat> the burden or the oracle, Isaiah 13, verse 1 the burden or the oracle or the prophecy against Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, and some other nations. But there's one nation that's repeated. A nation that um, is going to face God's judgment in an unusual manner. And it's Babylon. Babylon is mentioned a number of times. Because Babylon is funny, is going to, God, remember, God is judging Judah initially, chapter 1 through 12, right? And he's going to do so eventually, I think it's about 100 years later, is it 100 years later from the beginning of Isaiah's prophecies? Um, God's going to bring Babylon, who are going to now judge, are going to be God's tool to, to bring judgment on Judah and take them into captivity, right? But then later on, God is going to judge the very judge that judged Judah, you know what I'm saying? Because God is the ultimate judge and he's going to judge Babylon. And Isaiah begins to communicate that. Um, <clears throat> later on, Babylon will become the, the, the common description of the ungodly nations that stand against God's people in the future. You hear Peter call Rome Babylon. And then you hear even later on in the book of Revelation... You hear God going to destroy Babylon the Great. You know what I'm saying? Not just Babylon, you know, Babylon the Great. And, and sometimes you hear people refer to the en their enemies, isn't it? Like Rastafarians chat about Bab Babylon system. And um, it, it becomes a descriptive term for God's enemies. You know what I mean? And, <clears throat> and so that's judgment on, God's, on, on Judah's neighbors. But then third, you have... Judgment on all the earth. Can you see that the judgment is, is, is going further and further afield? In chapter 28 through 35, I mean, you can imagine this prophet coming out, out and declaring this. You know what I mean? And it's funny because we're talking about prophecies that were made hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. Yet they will prove that is the fulfillment of them will contribute, I say to prove. God doesn't need to be proved, right? But it's evidence that points to, to God's faithfulness to his word. I mean, God is not a man that he should lie. Now, in terms of this judgment on all of the earth, chapter 28 through chapter 35, there are five sections within here, and they, or six sections, sorry, and they all start off with 
Whoa. Whoa. And um, where, where in the Bible uh, do, do you hear reference, at least that you're familiar with, with reference to woes? Anybody? Definitely in the New Testament. Whereabouts in the New Testament? Book of Revelation. Woes. You hear it with reference to the, the opening of the, five, the, 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 the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and then the pouring out of the seven vials. Like, it's like, like here comes one vial. And it's like, oh, like it's, vi it's not a, it's vial, V-I-L-E, being poured out from this V-I-A-L, right? And you see, it's like, oh, you, you look at it, you're like, whoa. Oh my, and then, and then here comes, and, and it, the, the angel says, no, it, it says, and here, another one's coming. And here comes another woe being poured out. Woes. Um, there have been many who have experienced judgment in the past. Now, you know what? I remember, uh, we're living in the West, right? Probably, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. I don't know, maybe, I could, maybe it, it wouldn't be unfair to say 20 years ago. I used to keep, used to hear about, look, when I first got saved, gosh, 25 years ago, when I first got saved, <laughs> the circles that we used to move in back in them days, everything was like, oh my gosh, like judgment is coming, mark of the beast. And I'm saying everything was um, like antichrist back in, <laughs> back in them days. Pastor, you remember um, late great planet Earth, you know what I'm saying? And um, Thief in the Night, three-part three part trilogy, you know what I'm saying? Like everything was, oh, judgment is coming. And, and it's funny because I suppose maybe we don't hear that much about it now, yet when I look around and I kind of su survey the landscape, especially in the West, it seems like things are happening that never used to happen. People used to talk about persecution and you'd have to remind people that persecution is actually happening now. It's just that it weren't happening in London. It weren't happening where we live. But it was happening all over the world, different places in the world. Christians were being heavily persecuted. You know what I mean? But it feels like now you can't say, man, we, we in the West, we ain't really getting no persecution. We ain't really getting no drama. It feels like things are changing. Definitely, feel things are changing. And could it be that, and I'm saying, we are much closer to the woes on a global level than we, than we ever have been. Woes. Okay, so that's judgment on all the earth predicted way back then. Fourth, when you get to chapter 36 through 39, the book begins to, goes for a pause and you have this parenthesis where the prophecies, the prophecies pause. And you see three things that, that move from prophecy and even poetry to, to narrative. And you get in these few chapters, the story of Hezekiah in terms of his salvation from the Assyrians um, Hezekiah's salvation from a sickness. Remember I said to you, things kind of got bad for him towards the end of his life. And, and, and then Hezekiah's sin. And, and a part of the problem here is what happens is Hezekiah, if you know the story, he's a bit of a show-off. 
And here comes um, one of the kings of Babylon. Got a long name. Uh, skips, skips. Malada Balanda, but I can't remember his name. Um, but this brother, he comes into town, and there's no drama between Judah and Babylon at this point. The prophet has declared it, but every, everybody thinks that now we're cool. You know what I mean? It's like Isaiah, chill, man, relax, man. You, you know what I'm saying? You're just you're, you're over overreacting about things. And so here comes this king, and um, Hezekiah shows him the whole of his palace, and then he he takes him into the temple and he shows him all of the. Now you remember, like predominantly, what's what's one of the main. Um, like, what's the temple made of? Like, this is, this is Solomon's temple now. It's full of gold. You got the, like, it's like, when you walk into the, you got the holy place outside, which is where the priests offer up the sacrifices. You've got the, the bronze or the brazen um, altar, where they, it's like a big barbecue, where they used to throw the sacrifices and burn them as incense used to rise up to God. And then you have this thing called a brazen or the bronze laver. It's a big bowl where the priests used to wash. And why? Because they're slaughtering animals, isn't it? And offering them up a sacrifice, covered in blood. They go and they wash in the laver. That's the outer court. When you step closer to the main building, you go up some stairs into what they call the holy place. Now, when you step into the holy place, there are no windows in here. It's completely dark, apart from the light that comes from what? The golden lampstand which is on the left-hand side. And notice, it's golden, beaten from a solid piece of gold. I mean, and then on the right-hand side, you've got the table of showbread where they used to have to put the loaves of bread fresh every day. It's in here that um, my man, Elizabeth's husband, John's that Zachariah. It's in this room, Zachariah was, off, was functioning as a priest. Remember, and, and in there, the angel appears to him. Remember, there ain't no windows in there. And an angel appears to him. And I'm saying, no wonder he lost his mind in a sense anyway. That's another story. So in here, and then right in front of, you've got the golden lamps and you've got the, the table of showbread. Right in front of you is the, is the altar of incense. And it's where the priest used to offer up the incense and it used to burn continually. Now, behind the altar of incense was what? The veil. And behind the veil... Was the, was the most holy place, which is where they had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was covered in gold, right? So I'm, I'm, so I'm just saying, in there, it's like, and, and then apart from there, you've got all the shields that Solomon had. You had, you've got all of the implements. I mean, it's, I, I think they, they try to estimate how much money all of that stuff would be worth. And it, was, it just runs into like the millions. So my man shows off all of this stuff in it. And, um, and again, in the palace, remember Solomon never ate with anything less than silver. That's what he ate with. You know what I mean? And so, so the, the king's like, he looks at all of this, he's like, boy. And he just kind of no, takes note of it. Later on, he comes back and he plunders the whole place. Remember the name of Isaiah's first son? Swift to the loot, swift to the booty. See, this is the judgment. And, and it's Babylon that's going to come and loot all of this stuff. And so, <clears throat> you have this 36, 37, 38, four chapters, you know, four chapter interlude where that story pretty much is, is told. And then um, the fifth, Israel's deliverance in chapter 40 through to 48. Huh. 
in chapter 45, in verse 1, you have this incredible prophecy. Verse 1, it says, this is what the Lord says. To his anointed. Now, we've, we've, we've talked about that term in the past. What does the anointed make reference to? Chosen one, thank you. The king, like fundamentally, someone else said something over the back. The Christ, you know what I'm saying? That's literally what Christ means. It's Messiah, it's, it's king, it's the anointed one. So who is this the anointed one being made reference to in Isaiah 45? Well, it names him, and it's not Jesus. Although this guy is a type of Jesus, and he points to Jesus, his name is Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And the question could be asked if you were reading this in their context is like, oh my gosh, is this the one? And I'm saying it wasn't Abel, it wasn't Seth, it wasn't Noah, it wasn't Dave, it wasn't Sol David, it wasn't Solomon, because they're all dead and gone. Could this now be the one, the God-specific one, the anointed one, who was going to come and fulfill Genesis 3.15? Could be the question, you know what I'm saying? And remember, John the Baptist, when, when he got a bit bemused, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another and that shows you that Israel were always anticipating this special, unique individual. Could this be the one? Well, he's not the one, but he, as I said, is a type of Christ. Why? Because look, he's named before his birth. He's named before his birth. He was God's anointed king or representative. This one will subdue, notice, subdue the nations, you know. Sounds like Jesus in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, who's going to subdue the nations with what? A rod of iron. Who opens doors that no one can shut, who shuts doors that no one can open. Remember that reference is Jesus, but it says similar things to this man, Cyrus. See, this is the picture of the one. It's not the one, Cyrus, but he's a picture of the one. And Cyrus is going to bring deliverance from literal captivity for Judah, but Jesus is going to bring deliverance from spiritual captivity. Israel's deliverance. Then number six, we come to chapter 49 through 57. Forgive me, but this is the only way I could have made sense of this. Like I said, this is Mount Everest. Then we see Israel's deliverer, again, more specifically, chapter 49 through to 57, and he is the servant of the Lord. And it's a bit cryptic because he's the servant of the Lord, but when you read through these chapters, you actually come across two servants. The first one is Israel, that is the nation, that's God's servant, plural. But then you hear this reference to the Messiah, who's a person, singular. So you've got Israel. He said to me, as, um, Isaiah 49, he said to me, you are my servant, who? Israel, like the nation, plural, in whom I will display my splendor, says God. And that's got a double meaning because it, it's speaking to the people there in the context, but it's also a reference to the future. 
But, <clears throat> but then listen to another verse, um, Isaiah 42, that speaks, to the ind- speaks about this individual. It says, here is my servant. I think it's verse 1, Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, singular, and he will bring justice to the nations, he who saves Israel from their enemies. See that? This is a reference to a significant individual called the servant. The servant of the Lord. And it's funny, this This king is going to be a deliverer who's going to save Israel. He's a justice enforcer. Can you see that? He's an enemy crusher. He's glorious in splendor, this servant. The question that could arise in your mind is, how could this be Jesus? When all we see, when we think about Jesus, at least all we know of him up and to and prior to his second coming, all we know about Jesus is that he's a bleeding, suffering servant who's slain like a lamb to the slaughter. That's the only Jesus that we're familiar with, at least up until now. You know what I mean? Obviously, apart from his resurrection, but generally speaking. And, 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 and this, for them, brought about a massive misunderstanding in their context. Because... Can you see why, partly, why, I mean, it's partly because of their wicked heart, you know what I'm saying, and God blinding their eyes, but partly, can you see why the Jews didn't receive Jesus as their king? Because look at him. You know what I mean? You don't look nothing like Isaiah 42. We don't see no splendor. You know what I'm saying? We don't see an individual who's going to come and bring justice and to the nations, you know, who's going to save Israel from their enemies. Can you see why they wouldn't see Jesus as being this person? But that's because they misunderstood. It's one Messiah, but two comings. When he came the first time, he didn't come in splendor. He didn't come as the conqueror, as the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. No, that's not his first. That's his second coming. Right? When he came the first time, he came as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 42, conquering king, it will come later. But they're both fulfilled in Jesus. You see that? And it's funny because at the time, you could see how this would be really confusing. And they couldn't tell and predict the future. That's why they needed the prophet. But the future was going to be very, very confusing. How are you going to explain one person, you know what I'm saying, yet these two distinct comings? He did. Now we look back and it's, we see it with clarity. And sometimes people talk about the the future in terms of eschatology and what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Now, if you've been around as a Christian for a little while, you know there are quite a few different perspectives on the return of Christ. Some people want to nail it down to one thing, and they're very dogmatic about their perspective. This is the right perspective. (laughs) There are a few perspectives, and it does you well just to take a step back and breathe and have a look at them. And it's a bit like... The way the Old Testament saints looked at prophecy, it was like looking for a, a veil dimly. You can't really... And I think it's a, the same is true for us now. As we look forward to the second coming, the first coming of Christ was a bit unclear. I'm saying the second coming of Christ is going to be slightly unclear. It's not going to be something we can nail down. You know what I mean? And that's how I, I'm able to hold the different perspectives in some kind of tension. 
you know, and not be dogmatic about that. You know, I mean, it's tempting to be very dogmatic, you know, saying on a particular perspective, until you're aware of some of the others. And I'm just saying, in terms of the second, and the thing is, when Jesus comes back, we all go, oh, rah, that's what that meant. Now I see what that is. It's, it's clear now, then. But it's not clear now. You know what I mean? Just as it wasn't clear for the Old Testament saints at his first coming. Hopefully that makes sense. And all of these prophecies, all of these promises, is funny because they're based on God coming personally to deliver his people. Listen to Isaiah 7. Again, these are the, these are the classic Christmas scriptures, right? Um, but we have to remember that. Well, Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. I mean, what a verse. And I mean, this is one of the peaks on the Mount Everest of Isaiah. I'm like, what? Again, they read that and they were like, huh? We read that, we're like, bo. You know what I mean? It's like, it's this, what, what, a, what a prophecy. And, you know, Emmanuel, this is what I'm saying. It's, it's referencing God coming personally to his people. Because what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. This is a prediction, this is a prophecy helping God's people to see that he himself was going to be the one who was going to come and deliver them. He was going to be Israel's deliverer. Can you see that? And then this is quoted literally like verbatim in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. Um, in Isaiah chapter 11, another classic, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's who? father of David, right? A, 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 a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, right? Singular. The spirit of wisdom and, un, uh, and of understanding, the spirit of counsel, of might, the spirit of, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Again, it's another reference to Jesus, and Jesus quotes back, doesn't he, Isaiah, when he says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has what? Anointed me, you know what I'm saying, to, to bring liberty and preach um, good news to those who are bound. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, trying to convince you that this deliverer is actually the Lord Jesus Chapter 9, verse 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. <laughs> Pastor E, give me a joke, but Theresa May. I mean, really, it's, it's a, it's, it, no matter how great the politician seems, you can't put your trust in them. You know what I mean? Because they, they're just human, and, and they will let you down, inevitably. But here's, here's one individual you can put your trust in. The government, eventually... You know what I'm saying? Will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It's going to be a perpetual kingdom. Jesus is Israel's deliverer ultimately. And then seventh, we see Israel's glorious future. I'll just take a few minutes to end on this. Israel's glorious future in chapter 58 through to 66. And 
in this section, pretty much what you see is a tale of two cities. We just saw a story of one Messiah, two comings. Now this is the tale of, of two cities. And they're both called what? Anybody know? One name for both of these cities. Begins with J. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And what we have is you have these two cities. You have the Jerusalem that is below. That is that's natural. That's physical. That's geographically locatable. But then you have another Jerusalem that is above. And it's spiritual. In Isaiah 25 it says on the mountain. Notice. <clears throat> On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Hmm. People say you can't drink. Well, if you can't drink, at least you will be able to drink when you get into the kingdom. But we can drink. You just can't get drunk. Right? That's not why I put that in. Verse 7. Notice again, on this mountain... On this mountain, see that. See, see the specificity of that. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, a darkness, if you like. He will swallow up death forever. Ooh, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now, is this just Israel naturally speaking? It seems like it's a bit more than a bit more than that, doesn't it? And in John four we see, now notice it, it's, it mentions it twice. This mountain, this mountain. Remember John chapter four, verse nineteen through twenty one, where Jesus is having that conversation with the woman at the well. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped where? On this mountain, right? But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why? Because there's another Jerusalem. There's another mountain. Which mountain is this? Well, Mount Zion in Hebrews chapter 12. The city set on where? A hill. Do you know Jerusalem literally is on a hill? You know what I'm saying? But then there's a Mount Zion that's set on a hill, that's a city, and it ain't in Jerusalem. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city set on a hill, it's the church. Matthew chapter 5 says, you are, look, the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. You see, the church is the new Jerusalem. And it's funny, isn't it? Because the city would be on a hill and you could see the city from a distance, you know. Because there's all lights in the city. It's just like London, you know, the whole, like, when you're flying over, even when, like, no matter which country you're going to, during the night, you're flying and everything's dark and then you can see the airport and the city just lit up. You know what I'm saying? Well, Jerusalem was on a hill and you could see it from a distance and it's supposed to be indicative of the church. But it's not just on one hill, it's on multiple hills throughout the whole of the globe. Churches that are supposed to be lights to the city. Can you see that? Remember, we're trying to say the Bible is one big story. It's, it's no great surprise that it's all related. This should make complete sense. Notice what Isaiah goes on to say. 600 years before Jesus spoke these words, Isaiah chapter 60. Listen how close it is. Arise, shine, for your light has come. 
This is Isaiah. This is not Jesus. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and, and thick darkness is over the peoples. Is that not true? Then or today? But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Look, verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. See, this city is like a lighthouse to the nations. Can you see it? It's a beautiful... Is that just natural Israel? Are they a light to the world? No, but the church is. Verse 14, the children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. In conclusion, um, who can we trust in? Who can you put faith in? I mean, how many people put faith in the blues this week and were only let down horribly? You know what I mean? And there's, there's a group now who have put their faith in the Reds, thinking, boom, this, this coalition government with the DUP, that's not going to last. You know what I'm saying? We, we need to have another election in, in the autumn. And they're thinking the Reds are going to overcome the Blues. But then you give it a year or two, then what? I remember when Tony Blair won the the, the election, when the Labour Party won the election, gosh, it was, was it in the 90s? And 97, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Carnegie. And they were singing, things can only get better, can only get better. Do you remember that? Well, if you're old enough, you know what I mean? And the hype and the excitement. Now, you can't, you can't ever mention Tony Blair's name now. It's like swearing. It's like a curse word. Because he's the one that said there were weapons of mass destruction over in Iraq. The reason why people are blowing up people in the streets of London is because we went over there and... You can't even mention a man's name. I'm like, it's evident. You can't put your faith in the politicians or in the government. The only person we can put our trust in, put our faith in, is the one upon whom ultimately the government of the world... That perpetual government that will have no end. He's, Jesus is the only one that we can put our trust in. And it's beautiful because we can put our trust in him because he's the one that God declared from the beginning. Remember, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. I should have gone like that from the end. Depends where you're sitting, doesn't it? Declare, God declares that, that the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I'm going to ask the praise team to come join me. And as the praise team are coming to join me, <clears throat> remember.
Remember I said there was that middle section of the second section of Isaiah, where there's Isaiah chapter 53. And I'll just read a portion from that. It says, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, out of the root of Jesse. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Father, thank you. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.